another episode of the William Branham Historical Research Podcast. I'm your host, John Collins, the author and founder of William Branham Historical Research at william-branham.org, and with me I have my co-host, researcher, minister, and friend, Charles Paisley, the founder of christiangospelchurch.org. And together, we're examining the history and the intersections in history between William Branham and other key figures that either influenced or were influenced by the post-World War II healing revivals. Charles, we have now reached the point that I think all of our listeners have been just aching for us to reach in the point of history in this podcast. And a very funny story um, You probably remember this. A few years back, I started a documentary series where I was going through the history, and I was leading up to this event, and the cult heavily attacked that uh, docuseries, trying to prevent the public from seeing the information about what we're getting into in this podcast. And the real funny part is it's not even you know, the, the meaty stuff. We're, we're just skimming the surface of, <laughs> of the things that we're going to get into. But this one particular fact is such a eyesore, if you will, to the entire cult as a whole and its splinter groups and the, the different sects of Christianity that were built on top of it, that the cult actually took down my original YouTube site. It was called Seek the Truth. And Basically, they halted the production of that um, documentary series that I was working on. And what's funny is, now that we have reached that exact point again, and this time through you and I in a different YouTube channel, um, you know, through the course of this podcast, they have attacked it, attempting to bring the new one down. And um, <laughs> Charles, it's, it's like a religious whack-a-mole. You know, we, <laughs> we, we have so many attacks that, you know, one pops up and then we just whack it down and move to another one. Well, the, the odd part about all of this is they've tried so hard to stop this one key figure from being introduced into the message history because they've erased this history. And... What I decided to do last time when all of this happened was I uh, decided that I held all of the information and I'm a target. And they knew this. They targeted me. So I went pretty much offline for about a year to rebuild the technology behind all of this. And I now, whenever I receive information through <laughs> this technology engine that I've built and... Um, I won't give any details to this. They would love to know, and they've tried to actually get into my technology to know what it is. But it spreads like a spider web through the internet. So if you are a member of the message or interested in the message, you're going to learn this information. And that way, the information is shared across thousands, maybe tens of thousands, or even hundreds of thousands of people. It's not just one person that holds this information. So. What I decided to do is, while playing religious whack-a-mole, I would throw them back about 10,000 whack-a-moles back their direction. And so they just simply cannot stop what we're about to say, even though they've tried. But um, I will say they put up a pretty good fight for it. 
Yeah, John, it, it's pretty interesting how uh, how some people respond to things, you know. Uh, and it's really quite a shame, honestly, uh, you know, that people would use such malicious tactics. I mean, even, really even violating the law, honestly. Uh, you know, of course, there's nothing that we've done here that is um, incompatible with Section 107 of the Copyright Act, John. Uh, yeah. So, you know, they, they went through the copyright wars um, back in the 90s. I'm sure you remember that, how they went through the— <laughs> Yes, they did. <laughs> And we all know how that turned out, which we had, maybe we've got to do an episode on that at some point for our audience. <laughs> yeah, I think we should, <laughs> and, actually. <laughs> uh, yes, and, and anyways, basically, they lost all of that, right? And so they're really kind of just repeating some of the same legal battle stuff they've, they've already lost in the past. And really, the only thing they can do is, is slow the spread of this information a bit. There's no way they're going to stop it. Because like you've said, John, this is in multiple locations It'll be published in multiple ways, and, and the public will find everything out, um, all in all in due course, right? So, and today, John, we've got a really good episode, uh, one so good and so juicy that um, some people don't want you to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> and in this episode, uh, it's going to be some things I do think people find pretty interesting. Um, today, we are going to start our deep dive uh, into the Reverend Jim Jones and his connections to the message in William Branham. And to start, I, I think we should assume that some in our audience might not even know who Jim Jones is, so uh, I think we should take some time to talk about his life growing up in Indiana and what ended up leading him to begin working with William Branham. And I think a lot of that's an important context because Jim Jones is the biggest mass murderer in American history. There's no American who has murdered more people than Jim Jones. No one has even come close. He's one of the most evil people in the history of the United States, and he's also one of the most evil people to have ever been in the message. And William Branham is the man responsible for launching him into fame and popularity. Yeah, and before we get into the episode, I think I'll start with this. We've had so many people contact us um, offering to help in the fight, because as I said earlier... We've reached the point now where an attack on this website isn't an attack on me. It is an attack on all of us. The information has spread. There are many people who are invested in getting this information and helping to share it. So an attack on me doesn't work anymore. It is literally an attack on all of us. And people have asked, how can we help to fund this? How can we help in the battle? And I just want to say this. Um, this particular attack appears to come from one unofficial spokesperson for the main sect of the message. And interestingly, there is some history with this one individual. I won't give his name, but um, there was some trouble that actually started when my grandfather was pastor of the Branham Tabernacle. And I won't get into any of those details, but there is a history of problem here. So <clears throat> there is some history behind this that I think is probably playing a factor. But back whenever we were first attacked, I, you know, up, up to that point and even to, to a large extent up until now, most of what we do, I fund through my own personal account. Um, we have received just, you know, a little bit of money here and there, and I just keep it in an account for people who have escaped the cult and are in need. Um, for instance, I helped a person with groceries and, you know, we, we try to help if we can, there's 
obviously there's not enough money to help everyone, but we try to help when we can. And there's a little bit of money there for that, that we've, they've set aside, but I don't want to, um, immediately take the advice of so many people have actually contacted me asking me to create a GoFundMe page. I don't want to do this yet because I don't want the appearance that we're trying to, you know, devise a plan for people to give us money. This isn't about money. This is about the sharing of information and helping people escape from a very destructive, very oppressive set of religious abuse through a false religion. That's what this is. So, uh, I can't tell what we're doing in response. Um, that will obviously come later, but for now, if you want to support the podcast, you can through our Patreon site. And when it comes to the point where we actually are going to need some money for what's coming, there will be something put up that we will clearly state what the money's used for. Meanwhile, if you want to contribute to help people to help Charles and I in the research and to fund, we have travel expenses. <laughs> I've, I've actually spent thousands of dollars in just traveling and research. So if you want to help fund that, we have, we do have a Patreon site, but for the purposes of what's coming, let's wait until we know exactly what it is that we're going to do. Right, John. And I'm, I'm the same as you. Uh, I've, I'm certainly not uh, looking for donations, really. Um, if, if you do want to contribute to uh, help support uh, the spread of the gospel, that is perfectly fine. But uh, in terms of this podcast, uh, I'm, I'm definitely glad to uh, contribute what I know um, pro bono. <laughs> That's been my plan. <laughs> yes. I never will forget. I was working with somebody who had escaped the message and they were leading their family out, their children, and <clears throat> you know all the emotions that go with that process, I'm sure, Charles. It's very difficult to go through, and um, there are times that uh, there are a lot of people, once you've been in a cult mindset, when you break free from that cult mindset, it's um, there's, there's this aspect to it that you have to reconnect and plug in and try to, you know, there's a, there's a huge part of your psychological makeup that just has been torn out of your head and it hurts. I mean, it, it's like literally a death in your head and people try to fill in that void. And so they try to reconnect. And I never will forget, I was talking to this person who, um, who was going through this process with their family. And I mentioned, did you know, Jim Jones was a message minister and he was a leader in the cult. And they said, well, who's Jim Jones? And I was floored. Like I was in the message. I knew who this was. I, you know, I'm fascinated with history anyway. So this was, um, interesting to me, but I was shocked that there are people that do not know. And I said, have you ever heard the phrase, don't drink the Kool-Aid? And of, of course, course everybody in the world has heard this phrase now, man. And I said, do you know where that comes from? And I started explaining that Jim Jones and his cult of personality went to Jonestown, Guyana, and they set up a agricultural community. It was a utopia of sorts, very similar to Colonia Dignidad. And they, um, you know, the over a period of time, the cult became more progressively destructive. And in the end, Jones convinced over 900 people to drink cyanide-laced Kool-Aid, one of the biggest mass suicides in American history, although he was in, you know, Jonestown, Guyana when this happened. And again, I was just, I was really shocked that this person, and there are other people out there who have never heard of Jim Jones. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 it's something. Um, 
I, I think, too, let me point out just a few resources for people to look into if they want to go deeper, too, before we dive in ourselves. Um, there, there's a couple really good books I would recommend uh, if you want to do a really deep dive into Jim Jones' life. One is, this is called The Raven. This is by Tom Reederman. Tom Reederman was at Jonestown. He was actually shot uh, during the Jonestown Massacre. He survived. And when he got out and got recovered, he came back to the United States and he went around and did all kinds of uh, interviews with Jim Jones's family members and people in the town where he grew up and, you know, just his whole life and compiled that book, The Raven. Um, and it was published in 1987. It's uh, or maybe 1986, somewhere mid-80s. And it, it's a really, really good book. It is probably the Best book out there on Jim Jones. I would highly recommend it. John, I probably own and I've read every single biography <laughs> there is on Jim Jones. I, I yeah. have them all on my shelf, but I was thinking the two that are the best to me that I, I thought were the best. The other one is called, um, this one I'll recommend, The Road to Jonestown by Jeff Gwynn. And this book um, is a lot newer. This is from 2017. And the reason I recommend this one is also it's a very good biography, but he, obviously there's more stuff that's come out since the 80s when um, the when the Raven was wrote, and he does a good job of incorporating um, some of the more recent information uh, that has came out uh, in those years. So those are two resources I'd recommend for people interested. Um, two other places I would l refer to as primary sources, which I think, John, is mostly all on your website. I think they're all digitized, but Voice of Healing. Look at Voice of Healing through the through the mid-50s. You'll find Jim Jones and quite a few Voice of Healing referenced in, in the Voice of Healing. And also um, look in um, Herald of Faith by Joseph Matson bose And even more so, Joseph Jim Jones is mentioned in almost every single edition of Herald of Faith during the years that he worked with William Branham. There's even full, you can even find full spreads on his, uh, I, I, I pulled out just a few excerpts. Like, they're publishing Jim Jones sermons in Herald yeah. of Faith, right? Um, he's just all over that magazine. Uh, and of course, remember, Herald of Faith is really the main publicity organ for more so the latter reign, so it makes more sense that he's he's more heavily covered in Herald of Faith. So anyway, those those are some good resources to check out if you want to look into these stuff yourself. Yeah. I also recommend Alternative Considerations of Jonestown and People's Temple. Um, the website address <clears throat> is jonestown.sdsu.edu. I began working with the people at Jonestown uh, Institute, which this used to be called, and um, Rebecca Moore, who's one of the founders of the website and community, her sister was in Jonestown and was one of, if I remember correctly, she was one of the leaders in the Jonestown community in Guyana, and her sister's one of the people who died. Well, after the Jonestown event, the heads of the Alternative Considerations of Jonestown and People's Temple, joined the Jim Jones People's Temple cult to learn more about the sister and what happened and the events there. And over time, it grew into a research site and facility, and um, there are, you know, support groups kind of like we have for the message. They created a similar thing for people of People's Temple. And... Um, 
just uh, an overwhelming amount of research. You can find actual sermons by Jim Jones, and you can you know search the website. You can search keywords. It is actually what led me to understand that that William Branham was in the message, or Jim Jones was in the message. You're holding up a book, and I'm holding up two. Um, one of my books, Jim Jones, The Malachi Four Elijah Prophecy. I was studying the sermons, trying to understand more about Jim Jones. And honestly, at that point in time, I was falsely convinced that Jones just held a you know, one revival with William Branham, and that was it. I did not know he was a leader in the movement. And the people at Jonestown Institute were opened their doors to me, basically helped me find resources, helped me learn how to search their site, etc. And once I got into sermons, oh my gosh, I started reading them. And if you took the name Jones out and you change the language to a fake Kentucky hillbilly accent, it was the same exact thing that we had with William Branham. And I was reading, I was, I remember just being floored. How can this be? This is, this is like reading a different version of William Branham. And I come across this quote where there was this lady who was seeking healing by Reverend Jim Jones and she called him Elijah. And I was like, oh my gosh. So I started searching keywords, and that's how I found the Manifest Sons of God doctrine. Jones was mm-hmm. deeply, deeply influenced by William Branham's Manifested Sons of God, and uh, just a numerous other things, other similarities that I found. And over time, that developed into a working relationship where I... I, I now have them on speed dial, and I send questions, et cetera, and they give me answers or point me to resources, one of which we actually have um, for this episode or for the next one. Uh, they recommended a book by Doug Weed, um, <laughs> who we have uh, mentioned his father, who was uh, you know, the Indiana— what was he, the district superintendent of the Assemblies of God. So just overwhelming amount of information that I cannot say enough good things about alternative considerations of Jonestown and People's Temple. That's jonestown.sdsu.edu. Yeah, I, I'm I'm like you, John. I, I had more or less the impression that Jim Jones' time in the message was short and uneventful. Yeah. Um, and... I, I think I've, I've maybe mentioned this before, but our, our pastors, somewhere in the early 1990s, um, probably not very terribly long after he found out this book had been wrote, which talks about William Branham in it, um, so does the Jeff Gwynn book. You'll find William Branham in the Jeff Gwynn book, too. Um, he he preached a sermon, and my recollection, this was like a midweek service, and, and kind of when the service was over, he took some time and he talked to us about Jim Jones being in in the, you know, connected to William Branham and in the message. And this this would have been, this is Raymond Jackson I'm talking about, the man who officiated William Branham's funeral, okay? Uh, Junior Jackson on all the tapes. Um, and he, he told us how William Branham had worked with Jim Jones. And John, he told us that Jim Jones was a scarecrow and that God had put scarecrows like Jim Jones in the message uh, in order to scare away the denominational dirty birds, <laughs> <laughs> right? Like this was like the you know the the dirt the crows or the, you know 
the unclean birds is denominational people in our parlance. So <laughs> in our sect anyway, I don't know if it's that way in your sect. I think William Branham used that same language himself. Um, yeah. So so Jim Jones was the scarecrow to scare away the denominational <laughs> Christians. And look, and I look back then, I thought, oh man, this is a, this is amazing. God is so smart, you know, to use Jim Jones to scare away. <laughs> I think that might be the most ridiculous thing I ever heard. John. <laughs> now that I look back, I'm like, oh my goodness, no! I mean, we should have been scared and ran away. Like, yeah. what in the world? You know, in the main sect, they just simply covered it up. I think I've mentioned it before on here, but. My grandfather and some other men were responsible for protesting to keep that book that you mentioned, The Raven, out of the Jeffersonville Library so that cult members would not <clears throat> realize that William Branham was so deeply connected to Jim Jones. Yeah. And, you know, I've when I first began my research into Jim Jones, I remember publishing just one small blog article that <clears throat> I had learned that um, Jones and Branham held that that Cato Tabernacle event together, and uh, I think I wrote a, a small article for the Jonestown site at that time, and I got a flood of attack from cult members, and they said, this is guilt by association. You cannot say that William Branham or, and Jim Jones are connected, and they actually fought very hard to keep my research off of the Jonestown Institute site, and... Uh, if you go to their site and you just type in John Collins in the search, you'll see now I've got a list of articles on there where we're, you know, collaborating to get the Pentecostal history up. And very soon, I don't think it's published yet, but very soon there'll be a timeline up of, you know, William Branham's interactions with Jim Jones, etc. But <clears throat> they fought because guilt by association. And at that time, Charles, I'll be honest with you, I actually thought they had a valid argument. And... I'm sad to say this, but it hindered my research because I did not go past that first event. I found that there was a second event, and I thought that was just the limited period of time. And maybe there were two just coincidental happenstance meetings where Jim Jones and William Branham are in the same building. But no, I started researching. I, I was just curious. I wanted to learn more. I started reading the transcript of Jones. And it was because of reading those transcripts that I realized that this connection is much, much deeper than two happenstance meetings. This is Jim Jones, who is preaching William Branham's message. There's no yeah. question about it. Definitely. It is absolutely shocking. You know, and I, I'm the same. I thought it was just a, a meeting or two. But it is much, much deeper than that, and we'll go through that in these episodes. And Jim Jones, if you take William Branham and you cross him with Father Divine, you're going to get Jim Jones. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. Right. Uh, Jim Jones is William Branham crossed with Father Divine. Yeah. Uh, and it produces Jim Jones. The The latter rain message forms a key pillar of the ideology of Jim Jones and People's Temple. And William Branham or, and Jim Jones learned these things during his time in Latter Rain and working with William Branham. And through our next few episodes, I, I am excited that we're going to have opportunity to, to share share those things. So maybe before we um, dive right into all the juicy stuff, um, how about uh, just mention a little bit about his early life, John. Um, so Jim Jones was born in Indiana. So, yeah. you know, not really all that far from where Jeffersonville is right now, maybe about 150 miles from in, from where we're at. It's in eastern Indiana, 
His father was a World War I disabled veteran. He took an injury in the war, and he was bedridden for most of his life. And so Jim Jones was born into really abject poverty. You know, his father couldn't provide for the family. And um, as a child, as you read the biographies, he went hungry a lot. He didn't have enough food quite often. A lot of times he was completely naked. He didn't even have clothes to wear, right? Like it was yeah. that serious. Um, and to make matters worse, his mother totally neglected him. Like So he was just an utterly neglected child and when you read interviews of the people who lived in his community um, it was pretty common to that his neighbors would find him wandering the town stark naked looking for food right Mm -hmm. like that was a a a thing that happened in jim jones you know childhood on regular occurrence and and his neighbors felt really bad for him they would take him in they would feed him they'd let him stay overnight at their house and um People who study Jim Jones believe that those things caused him to develop or he already had some very serious mental problems as a result of those things from a very early age. So um, Jim Jones was a seriously troubled person from the earliest days of his life. Yeah, and I think that's key to focus in on because... There, there are all kinds of histories about Jim Jones. I'm fascinated by them. I'm sure you are, too. And for people who have studied those histories, it's, it's a bit different, I think, than historians can fully fle- flesh out because they don't have, most of them do not have the Branham history. Until you combine the two, you really can't get a full and complete picture of Jim Jones. But <clears throat> according to g- general history of Jim Jones, People believe that he did have some mental issues that were a result of his neglection and his, you know, very horrific, tragic lifestyle growing up. And he was getting involved with the early days of the Assemblies of God Church. One of his favorite places to visit was a local, I believe it was either Assemblies of God or Church of Christ, a little group where there were youth gatherings, etc., that transitioned into the Assemblies of God, and they sponsored all of these youth meetings. Well, during this period of time, Roy Weed and others were building the Assemblies of God churches, and by the time Jones becomes a minister in Assemblies of God, it is one of the most rapidly growing church organizations in the state of Indiana. It's massive. So he was deeply influenced by Pentecostal holiness lifestyle. He had these mental health conditions. And historians will generally say that this resulted in him becoming somewhat psychotic. And towards the latter days of his life, they believe him to have been fully atheist because they do not understand the manifested sons of God doctrine. Jones begins claiming that he is God and begins claiming that he is the manifestation of God. And he's saying things that a Christian would not say. So any Christian researcher is going to say this man is an atheist. He does not believe. But if you take what William Branham said in the 1965 sermons, Jones is just saying exactly what William Branham was saying, that he was this manifestation that Branham prophesied about. Jim Jones wholly bought into the latter rain 
the most extreme latter rain teachings. Absolutely. And that is what, um, and I, I look forward to deep diving some of his teachings in our next episode. I believe, it, I, I think beyond a shadow of a doubt, those extreme latter rain teachings is both what allowed him to take absolute control over his followers and also what allowed him to create the path that he believed he was God manifested in the flesh. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. That's, that's definitely what was happening. And it's the same pattern we actually see with quite a number of other latter rain figures, William Branham included. And if you examine the fruits of William Branham's ministry, the fruits being the splinter groups that branched off of the main sect, Charles, how many have we counted so far that take the manifested sons of God doctrine that William Branham created, and they begin claiming to be either the new apostle, the new prophet, the new mm -hmm. messenger, many of them the new yeah. Christ, the new, right. you know, there's so many different flavors of this, and it's literally, it is the fruit that is produced by the trunk of the message. That's exactly what Jim Jones did. And Jim Jones was actually Pentecostal from his childhood. So, yeah. I, you know, as I talked about him wandering the streets of his town naked, one of the uh, ladies that tended to take care of him would take him, started taking him to church. And and then that's how he ended up coming into contact with the holiness lifestyle and so, stuff, so forth was through that lady. I believe her name was Myrtle Kennedy. Her husband was the pastor of the church. And so he's he's going to church and he falls in love with an apostolic Pentecostal church there in the town that he lived in. I think it was called Lynn, Lynn, Indiana. And he's going there on Sundays. And he, as a young, very young kid, decides he wants to be a preacher. And, and, and he's preaching in the apostolic Pentecostal style. And as he grows up in life, he's Myrtle Kennedy and different ones take him to some of the actually larger revivals that are going on in Indiana. And as you think about that, as he's growing up in Indiana, it, it's quite likely, John, that he's probably heard of William Branham from a young age. Because the most famous Pentecostal preacher in the world at that time is William Branham. Yeah. And Jim Jones is in Indiana. Uh, and William Branham is, this is probably, you know, is the center of his fame, fame is right here. So it, it's quite likely Jim Jones had even heard about William Branham um, as he just started to become come into popularity in the mid-40s. You know, I was just thinking as you were talking, we have, we have actually changed the timeline of William Branham's ministry since I began working with the Jonestown Institute, we have determined that it was as early as, what, 1929, and we have seen William Branham holding Pentecostal revivals, advertising himself, all the way up to, um, you know, up to Mishawaka. By the time he's there, mm -hmm. he's, a, he's a recognized figure. Well, the earliest uh, interaction that I find in the newspapers with Jim Jones is 1940, um, it's at a prayer meeting at the Apostolic Gospel Church of Reverend Lester McFarland, and this Apostolic Church would have been in, if not direct contact with William Branham, it would have been in the influence of William Branham. Yeah, it definitely. It, it, William Branham was traveling in those circles, certainly by the mid and late 1940s when, when Jim Jones was, was in those churches. Um, so... The point in time which we start to get more solid 
solid evidence that William Branham or Jim Jones had heard of William Branham actually comes as you come as he goes to college. So in 1948, Jim Jones moved to Bloomington, Indiana, where he attended Bloomington University. And there is actually a message-connected, William Branham message-connected church in Bloomington. Uh, it's actually still there to this day. And the pastor of that church, and that church was actually in my sect of the message, John. Um, I know we've we've talked these things through before. And the pastor of that church is still alive. He's about 90 years old now. He actually left the message probably roughly 20 years ago. But he pastored that church for nearly 30 years. And while Jim Jones was in college, that church was located in a storefront in downtown um, Bloomington at that point in time. And we know through different things, and that pastor as well, that Jim Jones actually was at that Bloomington Message Church uh, at some points in time while he was at Bloomington University there going to IU. So he certainly would have heard of William Branham by 1949 uh, when, when, that, when he had access to that church. Now, his wife was a Methodist, and she actually wanted him to go to the Methodist church. So yeah. uh, Jim Jones actually ends up going a lot to the Methodist church during that time, too. But he's, he's, he's crossed. He is going to the Methodist church with his wife. And doing stuff there. And then at the same time, he's also going to these latter rain churches, John, in yeah. the same time frame. Like he's two time in the Methodist church <laughs> through those years. You know, it's funny. Um, when you think back at this history, we're kind of warped in our way of thinking about things because of the environment that we have today. You know, kids are playing Xbox, Nintendo, and <clears throat> their world is literally their bedroom. But back then, it was quite a different lifestyle. Uh, I remember even just, you know, 10 years ago, <laughs> there were so many kids who wanted to be Captain Jack Sparrow, and they're out with their swords and pirate, you know, get up. And the way kids play, they see a movie and they start playing. Well, back then, Jones was extremely poor, and <clears throat> the poor, poorest of poor like Jim Jones, couldn't even afford to go to the theaters. And yet he could go to these revivals and he could watch these guys entertaining the crowds. And he, I, I think the book, The Raven, captures this pretty well, but he wants to become this from an early childhood. He is yeah. mimicking them. He's, you know, he's out, I, I think one of the, one of the articles says, or one of the pages in the books describes him out, you know, pretending that he has a platform and he's speaking to children and whatnot. Mm -hmm. He's, you know, William Branham becomes his Captain Jack Sparrow, if you look at it this way. We don't know that William Branham, that he had seen William Branham by this point in time, but the general sense I'm trying to portray is these were more than preachers back then. They yeah. were your preachers. They were your entertainment. People would go to these revivals and there would be hot dog stands and soda pop stands. And I mean, this was entertainment. And to the poorest of poor, this was free entertainment where you also got fed. So Jones is highly influenced, but to the extent he sees it and he wants to do it from an early childhood and he is mentally unstable. And yeah. The combination of all of this, remember, Charles, in the latter rain, the way you get inducted into this is not by studying and learning your Bible and becoming 
you know, screened before you, before you get a congregation to make sure you are mentally stable. They laid hands on you and prophesied. And if this happened, boom, you had a ministry. It didn't matter if you knew the Bible or not. Right. And Jim Jones, you can read the accounts of the other children that he tricked or forced into playing church with him, you know, growing up. (laughs) And he was doing very creepy, very weird, very sick, twisted stuff all the way back when he was playing church with these other kids. Right. Like, and it it was creepy, sick stuff that he was doing from a childhood when he would play church even. And he was, he was doing it all in the apostolic Pentecostal style too, (laughs) you know, because that's what his, his influence was. And, you know, I know, John, you and I both have talked to different people who actually knew Jim Jones while he was in the message. Um, yes. Uh, just interviewed. I remember one person, we even talked to him together, how he told us about how his sister went to a sleepover with Jim Jones' daughter. Remember that one? <laughs> I like, remember that. Like we've, <laughs> right, there, there's, there's lots of people that have reached out to share with us, you know, the details of what they know about Jim Jones through this period of time, but... Anyway, it after Jim Jones leaves Bloomington, he finishes college up there, and he moves back to Indianapolis, um, and he's kind of two-time in the Pentecost or the Methodist Church. That's when he ends up becoming a latter rain preacher, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the whole time that he's going to the Methodist Church, he's also going to all these latter rain revival events, and you'll find this actually. It's as in, this is documented in his biographies how he's going to these latter rain events, and he catches his first big break in 1953. So, you know, he's going to the Boise Healing Ladder Rain Conventions. And in 1953, he goes to a Ladder Rain Convention in Columbus, Indiana. So we're this is about, what, maybe 25, 30 miles from Bloomington, right? Yeah, I think so. It's about halfway from Indianapolis to Jeffersonville. So he goes to a great big meeting in Columbus, and a woman at this meeting stands up and prophesies over Jim Jones that he has been called to be a prophet to the Latter Rain movement and gives them this big hurrah. And the convention actually invites him up on stage and asks him if he would like to preach to the convention. And of course he does. He preaches a sermon at a Latter Rain convention in Columbus in 1953. This is his big break into Latter Rain. At this yeah. point, and he's been going to latter rain events and conventions and churches and stuff up to this, but this gets him on the stage for the first time. Yeah, one of the people that I recently interviewed explained how much this exploded, <clears throat> and honestly, it was because of that person's testimony that I began to realize that the reason why the main sect of the message has. I don't know if you know this or not. The main sect of the message has actually tried to cover up the fact that William Branham was deeply involved with Latter Rain. Mm-hmm. If you study the history, there is no question. Branham was deeply involved with Latter Rain. Oh, yeah. He's the reason it exists. <laughs> and yet the message tries to cover it up. And they say that, no, William Branham condemned the Latter Rain, which he did. But they're they're hiding the fact that he also is the one who helped start the latter rain. Our sect actually fully embraced the latter rain. So I think it varies maybe even by yeah. sect. Our sect completely embraced the latter rain. We were the latter rain. Like we right. were we were proud to say we are the latter rain in our our sect. Yeah. And well anyway, this person who 
was there. I mean, this is a person who witnessed this, but Jim Jones was preaching in latter rain affiliated, church, affiliated churches all through Indiana, Kentucky, yeah. Ohio. Ohio. He's mm-hmm. just touring the country. And remember, this is a period of time in which William Branham was extremely famous in every latter rain uh, assembled church. Yes. If you look back to General Pentecostalism views the Azusa Street Revival as their birth of their religion, basically. And anybody who was at that was basically considered to be a Pentecostal founding father. A saint. They had authority in the, um, you know, in the ministry and churches. Well, the latter reign viewed William Branham much the same way during those years. William Branham and Franklin Hall were basically the two catalysts that exploded the the revivals into the latter rain. And so everybody wanted to know more about William Branham, and he became such a hot commodity that every church in latter rain, if you were in latter rain, you knew William Branham. And yeah. Jim Jones is touring through all of these Branham-related churches. Yes, yes. And as he's doing this, you know— um, that that church or the convention that he went to in 1953 was connected to Myrtle Beale. So remember the Myrtle Beale faction of Latter Rain. Right. And he ends up getting an invitation not long after that to preach another Latter Rain convention at the Bethesda Missionary Temple in Detroit, Myrtle Beale's church. So Jim Jones, not later in 1953, is invited to one of the key hubs of Latter Rain, where he preaches and holds a revival along with, with Myrtle Beale. And so at that point, he is coming into the peak of of what the Latter Rain can do for you as far as popularity. You know, he's not he's not reached the top, but he's he's getting there, right? Yeah. And so by the point he by the time he does that, Jim Jones is then a known preaching figure throughout a large subsect of Latter Rain. Um, and this is all happening just in 1953. So after he finishes that time with Myrtle Beale, roughly about that same time, this is when he ends up going to the Laurel Street Tabernacle in Indianapolis. Um, and Laurel Street Tabernacle was uh, an Assemblies of God church. And, and, and to put that in context, Myrtle Beale and most of these other churches that Jim Jones had been touring, they, had all, they were also Assemblies of God churches or former Assemblies of God churches that had successfully escaped, you know, exited the denomination. Yeah. So it, it's, it is Assemblies of God circles that Jim Jones is, is, is working within in the latter reign. And yeah. so he, he goes to this Laurel Street Tabernacle, John, which um, was a fairly new church that had been set up by none other than Roy Weed. An interesting side note about uh, Myrtle Beals. I wanted to call her Ma Beagle again, about Myrtle Beals Church in Detroit. For the main sect of the message, they will be familiar with this. For the general public, they will not probably, but... Myrtle Beals Church in Detroit was very close to Windsor, Ontario, just, you know, right across the country lines. Mm-hmm. And Windsor, Ontario is where William Branham had one of his famous message events. We, we all knew this in the message. But if you take a step back and you examine what William Branham said about this event with the way that Jim Jones forms his ministry— I think it will make sense to the Jones researchers. Jones had this very commanding, demanding, very authoritarian style 
of ministry and people were captivated by fear and scolding and he i mean right off the platform he would he would threaten people with sorcery basically well william branham in windsor ontario apparently he was challenged and i've got some research on this he was challenged because of at that time there were several healings that were proven to be false <clears throat> and um in windsor ontario william branham holds this meeting and apparently somebody challenged him and after the meeting william branham pretends that he won the challenge and he says and this guy came and he pretended to have something that was written on his prayer card that he did not have and god struck him down and paralyzed and they had to carry him out of the out of the building on a stretcher because he was paralyzed and then in another retelling he says and the guy was so scared that he ran screaming from the building and the story just continued to grow and change and morph the guy was either dead or he was still alive and paralyzed or he had cancer or he had tuberculosis all of these just weird <laughs> conflicting stories well this was right across you know right across the border to ma beale's church and ma beale is one of the heavy influences of jim jones's ministry something else yeah the man from windsor that's another one of william branham's fishing stories yeah that every time he told it the fish got a little bigger <laughs> <laughs> and it's a different type of fish charles yeah i know like what one day it's a bass and the next day it's a trout and then it's a flounder <laughs> like it's it's something else like uh that that story is something else again the it can be safely concluded the man from Windsor story is a total fabrication of William Branham based on some small little something that, you know, maybe it was a minnow yeah. <laughs> the day he caught it, right? That turned into, uh, you know, a shark by the time it was all said and done. But to Jim Jones, this, even though Jones probably knew this was also a fishing story, think of how it influenced him. This is a oh, person yeah. who is mentally deranged and somewhat psychotic. And he sees this guy who can command authority by telling this big lie to people on stage yeah. Yeah. that deeply influences Jim Jones. Yeah. W William Branham is essentially with that story inferring or saying that he has the power to curse people to death, yes. you know, on command, right? You looked at me funny. <laughs> Boom. You know, like that's, that's more or less what William Branham is saying he has the power to do with that story, which again, do you remember the story, John? This was told to frighten us a lot in our part of the message that there was a woman who came to the Branham Tabernacle and she had um, freckles. She was very freckled. And during a service, she stood up to William Branham after he preached, and she said, I wouldn't serve this to my dogs. And she stomped <laughs> out of the church. Are you familiar with this story? I've heard it, yes. Okay. And she goes home, and all of her freckles turn into boils yeah. and start eating her skin away. <laughs> and she dies this gruesome, horrible, painful, you know, flesh-eating death because of that. And she sends word... Oh, William Branham, I'm so sorry that I questioned you and made a scene during your church service. Will you please come pray that God will take this curse off of me? And William Branham thinks about it, but she dies <laughs> yeah. anyway, right? Like, like that's how... Yeah, this is the stuff they would tell you for 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 you know questioning the prophet. Now, John, I have a few freckles. This has not happened to me. John, I do not have cancer. I do not have any, you know, none of this stuff, like... 
William Branham made all that up, and, you know, people like me and you are living proof that he made these stories up, because we are alive and well, John. I'm immune to it, Charles, because I was one of the fortunate people who was under the blessing from William Branham to my grandfather. All your children and your grandchildren shall be saved. So I'm under this <laughs> blessing, and I'm immune, but <laughs> it reminds me, when you were talking, I don't know if you've seen the cartoon, The Sword and the Stone, Disney's cartoon, but it reminds me of the two wizards zapping each other with the wands, and one gets boils or turns into a frog or whatever, and I mean, picture William Branham and Jim Jones doing this to the congregation and then calling it Christianity. I know. It, it, it's, isn't it something? I mean, and here's the thing. Do you believe that a woman's freckles turn into boils and ate her skin alive after she went home? <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> I have never heard of anything like that in my life. I, I sincerely doubt that's even a true story um, at this point. But those things, when you're in there, yeah, scare you to death. And 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 think about Jim Jones. Yeah, hearing these kind of stories, like that man from Windsor story. This this is Jim Jones did this exact same kind of stuff with his congregations. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, going back to Laurel Street Tabernacle, John. Um, so this is Jim Jones' first church, you might say. Um, it's an Assemblies of God church. Roy Weed actually dedicated, set the church up. And as you look through the advertisements here, John, um, it seems like the pastor of that church was, was kind of an old guy who was going downhill and really wasn't able to keep up with things. And as you look at all of the newspaper advertisements, they all say Jim Jones is preaching all the services here. Yeah. Jim Jones preaching all services. So he he's there, I guess. But it, Jim Jones is doing all of the preaching at the Laurel Street Tabernacle, it appears. And he's doing this in 1953, 1954, 1955. And as he does, this is the period of time that uh, Assemblies of God is going into its extreme crackdown on latter rain. And during these same years that Jim Jones is doing this, Roy Weed is, and we have, we have the articles from Roy Reed, Roy, Roy Weed is personally um, defending latter rain uh, two assemblies of god he is fighting he's fighting against every attempt to purge latter rain out of the churches right and so when you read articles like this in voice of healing where roy weed is fighting to protect latter rain preachers in the assemblies of god realize jim jones is the preacher he is fighting to protect in Assemblies of God right then. That yeah. is totally in context. That is who Roy Weed is fighting the Assemblies of God to protect. He's fighting to keep Jim Jones and preachers like him from being purged out of Assemblies of God. And that's really, really something. And when you look at books like this one, John, which you've already held up, um, People's Temple, this is by his son, Doug Weed. He's one mm -hmm. of the co-authors of this book. This book was published in 1978. I believe this was this came out immediately after the Jonestown massacre. And when you when you read this book what's in here it is very obvious that these people that Jim Jones was working with in the 50s are in immediate full cover-up mode from the moment the Jonestown massacre happens. Absolutely. They are 
They are purging and trying to rewrite history from the moment it happens. And when you read this, this and this, and I actually have other of, of Doug Weed's writings. Doug Weed traveled with his dad. There's, there's almost every certainty that Doug Weed was at Laurel Street Tabernacle himself, right? Probably. In those years. <laughs> okay. And for them to leave out the fact, right? So he's writing this about people. For him to leave out the fact, hey, by the way, my dad uh, started the church that Jim Jones was in, and my dad was the reason that Jim Jones didn't get purged out of... Uh, my my dad defended Jim Jones and all the other Lateran preachers to try and keep them from getting purged out of Assemblies of God, and my dad's the reason that Jim Jones was able to preach in the Lateran churches in Indiana for those years. Yeah. What a terrible disservice. Doug Weed, you've done to us by leaving the truth out, right? Like, these people are... He knew. He knew when he wrote this book. He knew what he was leaving out. And if you read what's in here, it's a bold-faced lie. This is a bold-faced lie, and he knows better. Yeah. It's not a good book if you want to learn about Jim Jones, but if you want to learn how the how the culprits have twisted the truth, then you can read this book and you can see how the <laughs> how the cult is responding in cover-up mode. You know, it's it's so deep. I think I, I think historians don't fully grasp it because there has been such a cover-up of William Branham's influence on Jim Jones. Jones would not have existed in the way in which he did without William Branham and the message. We're going to build up to this, and people will understand, probably not this episode, but in the upcoming. But the Laurel Street Tabernacle is another example of this. This was an Assemblies of God church, and latter rain broke out, and it was deeply latter rain. They were holding full gospel, healing, revivals. Jones preaching, like you said, a majority of them. Well, what happened is the latter rain was such a scar on the Assemblies of God that they, as we've mentioned before, they condemned it and they said, this is not a movement from God. These are, these are extremists. They are coming to sever the body of Christ. And, mm-hmm. you know, they go into very various points, but essentially what they're summing up is that the manifested sons of God doctrine that William Branham originated, that Jim Jones propagated, that doctrine is pure heresy, and they actually came in and shut down the Laurel Street Tabernacle, replaced everybody on the board, kicked Jim Jones out, and it was because of that event that Jones becomes fully established as a William Branham message cult pastor. Right, because... The Assemblies of God, which is headquartered, I believe, Springfield, Missouri, Missouri somewhere, um, they basically come in over Roy Weed's head in 1955, right? Like, yeah. like they, they've had it with Roy Weed flaunting the orders of the General Assembly, right? And they they are, every church they hear that the latter rain is is got a foothold in, they are purging it out. Like, they're, so they, they come, basically they come down from corporate <laughs> and they, they throw out the they throw out the Lateran leaders in Laurel Street Tabernacle. They they dismiss the pastor, they sit Jim Jones down, he can't preach no more, and they install a new pastor. And and it's something else because it is Roy Weed's policy that allowed Jim Jones to get established there, allowed him to preach there, and allowed him to flourish there for those years, right? And he did that in absolute um, 
contravention of what the Assemblies of God leadership and general council had actually issued um, going all the way back to the 40s, right? So yeah. he was in total, he was in, basically he was in full rebellion against Assemblies of God with what he was doing. And I, I think history proves out, um, at least on this point, that the Assemblies of God central leadership was correct. Roy Weed was wrong. And we might not have had the Jonestown Massacre had Roy Weed obeyed the leadership at Assemblies of God, right? So there's lots of people here who are responsible, and we can understand why Roy Weed would, um, and his son Doug Weed would feel the need to try and cover that all up in their Mm -hmm. book. And why the message would try to cover it up, because again, the Jonestown Massacre would not have happened without Roy Weed and William Branham. I mean, if you remove these two figures out of Jim Jones' life, the Jonestown Massacre would not have happened in the way that it happened. Now, Jones was psychotic. There may have been another event. Who knows? But it would not have been to the extent of 900 people, over 900 people, dying in a religious community. That would not have happened. There's so many people that enabled Jim Jones. And, of course, you know, at that point in time, like, you can understand— it probably wasn't obvious that Jim Jones was going to grow up and be a mass murderer, right? Like, it probably right. wasn't incredibly obvious. So you, you can cut them some slack that maybe they didn't know, but you can't cut them slack for lying to us about what happened, right? Like, yeah. that is not okay. Like, I can understand that they had no idea this was going to happen, right? But to lie to us and cover up all their roles and hide the history from us, that's not okay, right? No. Because we have a right to know what this, that this ideology produced this stuff. Like, we, we do. The people that lived in it, grew up in it, we have a right to know um, the extremes that Laterain produced. Um, so, yeah, so they're, they're in cover-up mode. Those people that got kind of Jim Jones' his start there in that church and as you um as you as you move along through that after he gets kicked out of the Laurel Street Tabernacle um and here's the thing John I'm going to say this one more time this here article of defending that stuff this is immediately after Jim Jones has been is been kicked out of Laurel Street Tabernacle that he takes to the floor he is still defending Jim Jones after he has been kicked out and these people so and it's very likely that it is the purge in Laurel Street Tabernacle that inspired Roy Weed to write this article right here. Yeah. And remember in the timeline, this is the point in time in which Gordon Lindsay in the Voice of Healing, they're also coming to terms with the fact that William Branham is, A, not who he says he was, B, deeply embedded with white supremacy, C, introducing these very horrific anti-biblical doctrines that they're starting to pull William Branham from key speaking events. So at the same time that you have Roy Weed defending Jim Jones and William Branham, you also have, you know, half of William Branham's primary supporters cutting him off. So he's in this he's in this position where he really needs to grow a new circle of friends. And here's Jim Jones, who's a rising minister in Latter Rain, who is supporting William Branham. Who better to lead the championship for William Branham than Jim Jones? Yes. Now, 
somewhere along the line through through all of Jim Jones activities in 53, 54, 55, somewhere through there, he has come into contact with Joseph Metz and Bose and got yeah. on his radar. And as he's put out of the Laurel Street Tabernacle, Jim Jones actually takes a a chunk of that congregation with him when he leaves. So he's Jim Jones don't he loses the building, but he don't lose all of his followers, his his yeah. his congregants. So a number of congregants leave Laurel Street Tabernacle. Basically they just move to another block in um in in Indianapolis and they build and start People's Temple Full Gospel Church. Right? So the birth of People's Temple Full Gospel Church happened, you know, immediately after they're thrown out of the Laurel Street Tabernacle. And they initially build themselves as a Pentecostal full gospel Latter Rain Church. So People's Temple was born, John, and this blows my blew my mind when I figured this out. And as you know too, People's Temple started as a full gospel Latter Rain Church. It was founded as a full gospel Latter Rain Church in Indianapolis. And like I said, somehow Jim Jones has come into contact with Joseph Matson Bose and no doubt Joseph Matson Bose was at a number of these conventions that Jones was at, most likely even some that he preached at. It wouldn't surprise me that Bose was at the Myrtle Beale convention in 53 because they were still friendly at that point. And I, I could totally see that Bose, and it probably wouldn't even be that hard to prove if that was true, that Bose was at the 53 convention where Jim Jones preached for Myrtle Beale. But at any rate, Jim Jones and Myrtle and Joseph Matson Bose have become buddies by 1955. And, you know, we have um, Jim Jones ends up getting it ordained. So Joseph Matson Bose ordains Jim Jones as a minister in the Independent Assemblies of God. Right after he starts People's Temple. And keep in mind, Joseph Matson Bose is at this point in time the primary advertiser for William Branham. Right. Herald of Faith is the main publicity tool for William Branham at that point in time. Before he is ordained, though, John. Joseph Matson Bose sends these letters to William Branham, which we have copies of. And here's one he sends to William Branham. Um, and here's another one that he sends to Jim Jones. There's just a page of it. He sent in letters to Jim Jones and to William Branham, introducing them to each other. And in his letter to Jim Jones, he's saying, here's Brother Branham's private phone number. Here's Brother Branham's how to get private mail to Brother Branham and bypass his handlers, right? Like he's telling that to him. And and in this letter um, to William Branham, Matson Bose says something in here that is uh, really disturbing. Honestly, when I read it now, and and you're right, John. The reason that William Branham is or J Joseph Matson Bose is doing this is because he's trying to help William Branham rebuild his campaign team right here. And what's happened is. You know, Ern Baxter's been lost to a split. F.F. Bosworth is sick and his health's deteriorating. He's about to pass away. He can't tour nearly as much anymore. Gordon Lindsay and a lot of the other Voice of Healing evangelists are distancing themselves from William Branham because of, uh, you know, the, the splits that are going on with Latter Rain and the pressure from the denominations. So William Branham is losing a lot of key figures on his team. And Joseph Matson Bose stepping in to take over Gordon Lindsay's spot. Herald of Faith is replacing Voice of Healing as his primary publicity tool. 
And Joseph Matson Bose is trying to help William Branham build a new team and replace the figures that it needs to be pulling off these revivals. Because it takes a lot of people to pull off one of these big revivals, right? And Jim Jones is one of the people that Joseph Matson Bose introduces to William Branham to help replace some of these people he's losing on his campaign team. And I think it's significant that people realize <clears throat> how important that letter is. As you mentioned, it is instructing Jim Jones and how to bypass the screeners to get directly in communication with William Branham. To the average person listening, they think, well, that's no big deal. If I go to church and there's a minister, I can just walk up to the platform. I can talk to him. It's not this way in the message. My grandfather did not have nearly the massive ministry that William Branham had. But after church service, he had two, <laughs> I called them bouncers back then, but basically there were two bodyguards. And when he walked from the building to his car, there were two bodyguards that screened the people and you could not access my grandfather. There were men with guns who were protecting my grandfather. I, <laughs> I have my con concealed carry, Charles. And once you get a concealed carry and you're carrying a weapon, you start to notice the way people walk and move and the way they wear their coats, etc. Well, I, I knew in the message, I knew when people were carrying guns. My grandfather had a gun. So it's not like you can just easily ex access these people. And <clears throat> it's quite different from a quote unquote normal church where the minister is a shepherd and he's inviting and he, he wants people to reach him no matter who you are, where you're coming from. Let's let's go talk about Jesus. Let's go get saved in the message. It's not like that. You have an authoritarian figure, the pastor, and to get to the pastor, there is usually a level of screening. Now, I will say that in some of the smaller churches and remote areas in the message, they're not familiar with this because the pastors have no idea they're supposed to be like this. But when you get into the bigger main sect of the message, and probably even some of the bigger ones in your sect, Splinter Group, there is a deep level of screening. Now, William Branham's level of screening was far more intense than any of this that I've described. Yeah, you, you're spot on in what you're describing, John. And I have heard that from... That was one very common thing, actually, when I interviewed all the old-timers in our sect that I heard over and over how hard it was to get to William Branham. And he did have some sort of a... They used different words. These are people that came from the tabernacle that knew him. They used different words, but they were like enforcers that yeah. surrounded William Branham and guarded access to him. And you couldn't, you couldn't even at the tabernacle just go up on the platform and have a conversation with William Branham hardly. Yeah. Right? Like these people controlled access to William Branham. They controlled his appointments. They controlled who could talk to him, when they could talk to him, right? Yeah. And you, you just could not get access to William Branham if you wanted to, right? And so, yeah, it's a very big deal that Joseph Matson Bose is telling Gordon or telling Jim Jones how to bypass William Branham's handlers, right, and get right directly to William Branham. Another example I'll give, which is, again, I want to point this out because this is significant. Today, we don't have nearly the popularity of William Branham. Most people in the world have never heard of the man. Most people in the United States have never heard of the man. And William Branham's sons are still seen as the same sort of, you know, spiritual authority. And people go seeking private interviews for 
you know, basically it's, <laughs> it's like spiritualism. They go to a fortune teller. They want to know their fortune. And I personally know multiple people, not just one, who actually moved here because the sons are so hard to get an audience with. One of them, I became very close friends with the guy's sister. She was from Alaska. And he got trapped into this cult, and she was trying to save him from the cult. And she was trying to learn more about it. So she came here. She stayed with us, I don't know, two weeks or so, trying to understand what her brother was involved with, where her brother had moved to this area a full year before and for an entire year was trying to seek audience with one of William Branham's sons for spiritual guidance, basically for fortune telling. He wanted to know something in the future about his life. And she was trying to understand, well, why does it take a full year? I mean, the guy's right there. You just, he goes into church, meet him at the building. It is not that easy. You cannot access these people. Yeah. And when you, when you study cults, one of the reasons they do this is so that the leader can appear to be above the fray, you know, above the dirt. And so these people in, you know, this line around him can can get their hands dirty, right? Yeah. And then he can be above the fray. And, you know, that's exactly, exactly, certainly in my sect of the message, how we looked at all of William Branham's handlers, right? They were the bad guys. They were the ones doing all this stuff. All the bad stuff that happened, this is the handler's fault. They didn't, William Branham did not know that they was doing this, that, or the other. Yeah, he did. And he's the one who put them in that position for the job of doing that so that he wouldn't have to get his hands dirty. Yeah, absolutely. That is exactly what he was doing, and he did it on purpose, right? And that's a very normal for, for high-ranking cultish leaders to get some lieutenants around them so that then they can keep their hands clean and, and keep the positive image of the people, right? And so then all of the, the negative thoughts land on these people around him. Why, why was William Br- like William Branham's enforcers were the people who A, thought he was God in the flesh, right? Who uh, B, uh, handled all the money, who C, shut off the water in the building and enforced church order and that kind of stuff, right? Like these are the people around. And you don't think that William Branham knew what they was doing and supported them? Of he course knew. they did, right? And then when the people could come complain to William Branham, he'd say, oh, well, that was just my lieutenant. I'll talk to him about that. And then he did talk to him about it. Keep doing it, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's just, it's a, it's, it's a little bit angering, John, the, those yeah. kind of things that went on. And this is the environment that influenced Jim Jones. This is the atmosphere that is creating Jones' ministry. Yeah, and Jim Jones did this exact same stuff actually when you look yeah. he did the exact same stuff so he he modeled himself the same way let me read so let me read just one a little bit of this letter that from Joseph Matson Bose to William Branham and Joseph Matson Bose was super interested in preserving history and John I am so glad that he was because all of his correspondence he kept let copies of all of his correspondence And we have been very fortunate to be able to obtain copies of all of his letters to William Branham, all of his copies of his letters to Jim Jones. So we we know through these letters what was going on behind the scenes somewhat with these figures. Let me just read the opening part of this letter to William Branham. Um, There's something here that disturbs me. It says, I herewith... Dear Brother Branham, I herewith introduce to you Reverend James Jones of Indianapolis, Indiana. Brother Jones is a servant of God and a bosom friend of mine. He has an excellent work, a young work in Indianapolis, and I consider him 
and the church he pastors, which is People's Temple, to have a great future in Indianapolis. You will love the spirit that is in Brother Jones. You will love the spirit wow. that is in Brother Jones, said Joseph Matson Bose to William Brown. Now, I have some pretty strong feelings about the spirit that was in Jim Jones, John. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you look at what happened after that letter, William Branham is involved with Jones for many, many meetings, years. I mean, right. they're, they're having meetings the month immediately following that letter. Yeah. It is very clear that William Branham also loved the spirit of Jim Jones. When I found that letter and I read that line, I felt sick, and I feel yeah. sick to this day every time I read that letter. Brother Branham, you are going to love the spirit that is in Jim Jones. Yeah. You know, William Branham was a prophet, supposedly a prophet, that had the greatest gift of discernment that ever was, so we told. William Branham was supposed to be the greatest prophet there ever was, right? William Branham was supposed to be, he would even say he's greater than Jesus. I've done more miracles than Jesus, right? Yeah. He would make claims like that. Well, he was also, to his cult of personality, he was supposed to be the greatest fortune teller that ever was. We've talked about this before, Charles, but Christians in general don't get this because <laughs> this is purely evil. This is, this is what the Bible condemns, and this is what the Israelites were commanded to stone people for. But there were a large number of people who went to William Branham seeking an audience, just like this guy that I mentioned who's seeking audience with the sons of Branham, seeking to learn their fortune. They wanted to know, they wanted William Branham to peer into their very soul and into their future. And there were a large number of people doing this. William Branham even mentions on recording that he was holding these private interviews with the, <laughs> with this, the promoters of the ministry who we now know are Jim Jones and people's temple. So he is actually holding these fortune telling um, he, he calls them discernment. You know, there's different names given for it. private interviews is I think the general term, but they are fortune telling and he is fortune telling for the people of people's temple. You know, in 1955, William Branham, um, has started working with Satan. Okay. <laughs> Boy, that's pretty strong, but he has. And Jim Jones, he started working in Paul Schaefer. So in May, he gets this letter and starts working with Jim Jones. By the fall, he's also working with Paul Schaefer, okay? he William Branham picks up the two most evil people ever in the message within just a few months right here. Um, we're talking between the two of them. I mean, how many tens of thousands of people? How many tens of thousands of rapes happen between these two figures, right? Yeah. William Branham has started working with the devil in 1955. The greatest, supposedly the greatest prophet with a great gift of discernment is working with the devil starting in 1955. I mean, it, it's that bad. Well, you know, if you think about it, Charles, I mean, he was working with some very, very bad people. We've explained this from even before the history that we're supposed to know. As early as 1929, he's working with the supreme religious chaplain of the Ku Klux Klan. I mean, it's that bad. So he's, William Branham has been influenced by some several, you know, several very bad people. But the two figures that you mentioned, Paul Schaefer and Jim Jones, <clears throat> and we'll probably get into this into <laughs> either the third or fourth episode, who knows how far this will go. 
Remember, William Branham is predicting and prophesying that America is going to be obliterated by the rise of communism, which we now know he was referring to Jews and mongrels or coloreds or whatever you want to call it, into what William Branham preached was this impending race war. And one of the most popular places to go to escape this alleged destruction was South America. And again, we'll get into that in future episodes, but picture what happened. It wasn't just Jim Jones from the message cult that went to a utopia in South America. We also have Paul Schaefer who goes to Colonia Dignidad. And if you examine the similarities between the two cult communes, which were, you know, under the disguise of being agricultural communities, they're doing the same thing. They're influenced by the same person. They're both in the latter rain version of William Branham's message. They're both deeply, deeply influenced by the manifested sons of God theology. These two men were the creations of William Branham. And they were already bad guys before they started working with William Branham. Yes. Paul Schaefer was already a child molester preacher who'd been kicked out of churches before he started working with William Branham. Jim Jones, read his biographies was already a creepy, sadistic monster before he started working with William Brown. Right? Even from a child. So, so all of this, well, he could know the Jonestown Massacre. If that man actually had the gift of discernment, he would have realized he was working with a sadistic monster, right? Yeah. He he should have realized that. Um, yeah. So so either he had a gift of discernment and, and knew he was working with a sadistic monster or, or, he, or he didn't have the gift that he pretended that he had and i actually leaned towards i don't think he had these gifts john i think not at all i think the fact that he chose to work with men like this proves actually he did not have these gifts and somehow he fooled people into thinking he did um and here's the thing we're just talking about the two worst cases john there are so many we, we'll get into at some point down the road the child molesters the rapists the killers that were in william branham's inner circle at these same years besides these men, right? Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll get into that. William Branham is, is working with the devil here from 1955. It is, it is bad stuff. And so, you know, people come up with all kinds of mental gymnastics to explain that when you're in the message or twist the Bible to justify all of this. But, um, Jesus did not endorse mass murderers. He did not ordain child rapists. You know, these things did not happen in the ministry of Jesus or or the men in the Bible, right? And so, but but it did happen in the ministry of William Branham. It, it's something else. And so, anyways, as this is happening, John, um, William Branham and the and and Joseph Matson Bose are really publicizing Jim Jones. And the actual oldest copies of Jim Jones sermons are the ones that are published in Herald of Faith magazine. The, yeah, the oldest records of Jim Jones and his ministry that are available are in these latter rain publications. And so we, we kind of have an idea already of what Jim Jones is doing and preaching, and it's all got a flavor of, of everything that's going to lead the same stuff he's preaching at the end of his life, too. It's all, yeah. you can get a flavor of it right there. And we also have some audio recordings of William Branham's meetings with Jim Jones. And I know it's in a future episode here, we'll, we'll go through where Jim Jones and William Branham toured together, some of the things that they did. Um, 
But to me, I, I think it is very remarkable, John, that in, in their books, like Tom Riederman's books, that once Jim Jones starts working with William Branham, that Jim Jones starts doing the exact same kinds of stuff that William Branham did. He he seems to have a gift of discernment, just like William Branham's. He seems to have a gift of healing, just like William Branham's. You know, Jim Jones is telling people the secrets of their hearts at these meetings alongside William Branham. He's praying for people, and the people are going away saying, I'm healed, right alongside William Branham. And so to me, as I look at that, and I, you can go on YouTube. You can find the testimonies of the people leaving Jim Jones' meetings. I was healed, and Jim Jones told me the secrets in my heart. Like, these are, are all there. You know, if those things are something or criteria you can use to vindicate a prophet— then we would have to say Jim Jones is a vindicated prophet, right? Yeah. I think the most important thing that you said was referring to the devil in the camp. And when I began publishing my research on Jim Jones, I started getting this flurry, as you can imagine, of message defenders who were saying that, well, what about in the Bible? You've got Jesus, who's preaching with the disciples, and then you've got Judas, who's the enemy in the camp. But there's a significant difference that you have already pointed out, and I want to emphasize. Once Jesus learned—well, Jesus knew all along that Judas was going to be who he was, but but once it reached the point where he was becoming that, where Judas was becoming the evil that was going to betray him— Jesus did not instruct people to go follow Judas. Jesus did not lift Judas up on a pillar and say, this is a good man. This is a man who's got a good spirit. He's got a spirit you will love. This is not what happened with Judas. With William Branham, he's talking to the people's temple. He's, you know, they're coming for their for their learning their future from the fortune teller, right? And he is saying good things about the host pastor, and he praises Jim Jones. He does not say this is there's one who's going to betray me, and he might be the minister on the platform. He doesn't say this. He says, "This man, you know, this is a good man. This is this is our host pastor. Thank you so much, Jim Jones." I'm happy to see you. Jim Jones made William Branham happy, right? Yeah. You know, Jesus did not endorse and partner with mass murderers, child rapists, homosexuals, Nazis, white supremacists, or drunken womanizers. Yeah. But William Branham did, right? Judas was not like those people. Judas was bad, but Jesus was not endorsed. You know, the only person Judas killed was Jesus. Yeah. Okay? It's hard hard to think of it like this because as a Christian, you don't want to think of it this way. This is a man who resulted the end result was that Jesus died because Jesus Jesus was betrayed by Judas but if you look at the scale of what happened it's very arguable that people like Paul Shaper people like Jim Jones were actually worse than Judas they killed 9 900 people in Jonestown alone granted they did not you know betray the Christ it's you know It's in a different category, different different league. But these were very, very evil people. And you have to weigh into the balance. Well, 
one, Jesus knew was going to betray him, and this is what resulted in the cross that hangs in, on our churches, right? This is the reason why we have Christianity. The other one, no, this was just a bad guy who killed a lot of people and destroyed the lives of way more than the 900 who actually died. Right, and you know, I could put on my preacher hat for a second, John. You know, Jesus said, I have lost none that the Father gave me except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. Judas is a one and only exception. Right. It don't work again. Like, And that is the words of Jesus Christ himself. William Branham don't get a pass for this. And, and the whole premise on which that we're trying to say he's, you know, Jesus had Judas. William Branham was not Jesus. Wake up message people. <laughs> William Branham was not Jesus. The very basis of your... Of what you're saying is predicated on your on the ridiculous deity of William Branham ideas, right? Like yeah. that's normal Christianity would not even go there, right? Yeah. Like you're you're so far off base to even start there. Wow, I, I mean, wow. I get sucked into that trap so many times because I get so many emails, you know, Charles, and the, and they make that comparison. Well, Jesus did this, and William Branham did this, and. It's very difficult to stay out of the weeds because you want, mm-hmm. there's so many problems and flaws with their defense of William Branham that you go to the more obvious one. Well, the obvious one is, you know, Jim Jones was quite a bit worse than Judas, but you're right. At the very surface of all of this, their comparison would not exist if they did not consider William Branham to be their deity. And that's very problematic. So, yes. what. Well, Charles, we've um, I think we've gone a bit over, and I'm again I'm so excited to get into this research, and we're just now skimming the surface of the beginning of the Jim Jones history. I think we have probably two or three more episodes to go after this to even begin to establish the deep connections between Jim Jones and the Message Cult. So. If you've enjoyed our show and you want more information, you can check us out on the web. You can find us at william-branham.org and christiangospelchurch.org. For an overview of the historical research of William Branham and the healing revivals, read Preacher Behind the White Hoods, a critical examination of William Branham and his message, available on Amazon, Kindle, and Audible. Join us again next week. We've got a great episode coming.